Welcome to Series 5 of the Bible and Me podcast from Precept Ministries UK. The series that uses incredible life stories to give God the glory. Before we dive into this week's episode, if you haven't done so already, be sure to click that subscribe button so that you don't miss out on any of the amazing testimonies in the future. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Major General Tim Cross to the podcast today. General Tim was commissioned into the Army in 1971 and commanded soldiers at every level from a small bomb disposal team in Northern Ireland in the 1970s to commanding 30,000 soldiers in a division from 2004 to 2007. He has extensive experience on operations, including deployments to Iraq and Kuwait, and following tours to the Balkans in the late 1990s was awarded a CBE for his work in leading the NATO response to the humanitarian crisis there. Now retired from the army, he fills his time with a variety of, of a wide range of responsibilities, including tutoring at the Leadership Trust, sitting on the board of different companies, being an honorary professor at three UK universities, and also being a local lay minister in the Church of England. Uh, I'm not sure, General Tim, how you fit it, all this in. Anyway, welcome to the programme. Thanks, Nigel. Now, I remember, it was probably 30 years ago, going to our chaplain's house, and you had been invited, I think you were a lieutenant colonel at the time, and you were asked to speak on the subject of money, sex, and power. <laughs> now, clearly you were coming from in those subjects from a Christian perspective, but... Um, how did you come to be a follower of Jesus? And why do you follow Jesus? How did that happen? Sure. Sure. Well, I think um, uh, I was uh, raised in a, in a lovely home, actually. I was adopted as a child by my father, but I never knew that till I was 16 or so. Very, very, uh, very happy uh, home life. But we were not a Christian family. We didn't go to church. I mean, we, my father, I think my mother and father would say they were Christians, but, you know, went to church occasionally. I was sent to church rather than taken. <laughs> yeah. um, but... Um, uh, I think there was a sort of series of steps. I was at the Academy at Sandhurst in 1969 for a couple of years. Uh, in those days, it was a two-year course. And I, for some reason, which looking back, I was never quite sure at the time, and even now I look back and wonder why, but I wanted to get confirmed at Sandhurst, which was quite unusual, actually, because quite a lot of people at Sandhurst had already been confirmed um, for various you know, various schools and so on. But I was confirmed at Sandhurst. Um, I, was, I was also at college, an army college, in 67 to 69, which had a wonderful chapel and uh, I found myself being drawn into the, the mystery of, 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 of the Bible and the faith and so forth and, and, and you know, thinking quite a lot about it and I think that was the precursor to getting confirmed but I then left Sandhurst I did a tour in, uh, in Germany and as you say in Northern Ireland um, got married to Christine we had our first couple of children uh, and I then found myself in Cyprus in 1981 on a United Nations tour now if I'd been asked I think I would have said probably that I was a Christian but uh, during that tour, which we were there for a year working with the UN in Cyprus, I managed to get a couple of seats on an aeroplane, a UN aeroplane that plied the, the sort of lines between the various UN aid operations going on in, in the Middle East at the time. This was the time of you know Arab-Israeli wars and so on and so forth, and Golan Heights. So this was a fairly small plane. We got a seat from Nicosia, where I was based, into uh, Jerusalem, and we went for a four-day break. Essentially, left the children with a, with a friend and found ourselves in Jerusalem over the Easter weekend, as it turned out to be. Wow. Wow. And, I um, think I can see what's coming here. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, uh, we were tourists, essentially. We wandered around looking at the sites, went to various places. But on the, it was Easter Sunday, and therefore we went to an Easter Sunday service in the English uh, cathedral there. A very nice service. I remember bits of it still. 
Um, and uh, over coffee, somebody had said, had we ever been to the garden tomb? And I'd never heard of the garden tomb. But funnily enough, walking around the day before, I remember seeing near the, um, I think it was a Damascus Road bus station or something, there's a, there's a hill that looks like a skull and so forth. And I'd, So there was a sort of vague picture in my mind, and they told us how to get there. And so we went in to have a look around. And the guide that day was a retired British Army colonel, a guy called Dobby. Came from a very well-known Christian family, a military Christian family. And um, he showed us around the tomb. Wonderful place, very peaceful place. I think it's a lot more well-known now than it was in those days. And at the end of this sort of trip around the garden tomb, we sat on a bench and he got out John's Gospel and chatted about why this could be the place that Christ had been crucified and laid in the tomb. There was a first century tomb, there was a wine press, there were various other things. It was outside the city wall, it was a shape like a Golgotha of the skull and so on. And then he said, well, look, this may or may not be the place. But the, but the really important issue is, uh, on that first Easter Sunday morning, and remember this was an Easter Sunday morning, my 30th birthday that day, he said, uh, if you go and look inside that tomb, it's empty. And I have to say, feeling a, a little bit of an idiot, I stood up, walked over to this tomb, and, sort of <laughs> and looked inside. inside. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure what I what I thought I was going to see, but clearly it was empty. And as I leant on the sort of door, well, it wasn't doorpost, but you know the entrance, I, I found myself thinking, actually, you know, this is a pretty important question. I mean, if that tomb had not been empty on the first Easter Sunday morning, then the reality is, for two thousand years, billions of people have been wasting their time, as Paul says in one of his letters to the churches. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we of all men are to be pitied, and um, and therefore it's a pretty pretty important question. And I didn't didn't it wasn't a Damascus Road experience in the sense that I made that decision there and then. But Christine and I went back to Cyprus. Coincidentally, Christine had gone to some Bible studies and met some people and had decided to become a disciple of Christ, to become a follower of Christ, independently of what was going on for me. And then, within the space of a couple of months, having chatted to people, taken advice, looked at the scriptures and so forth. The bottom line, I think, is that I found myself admiring Christ as a courageous man, physically and morally. As a man who had a clear sense of purpose and identity. Um, and I found myself thinking, I can't, I can't sit on the fence about this. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I've been a nominal and inverted, Christ, inverted commas Christian. I need to decide, am I going to be serious about this or not? And so I made a decision for Christ. <laughs> so, you know, to quote John, I was born again. Um, and in Cyprus. Had, in Cyprus. <laughs> <laughs> and life has never been the same again. Um, so it was, it was, it's, it's a great, it's a great time. I can recall it very well. It's a great, obviously a great and important moment. Yeah. Um, but I, it, for me, the, the big issue, and I talk a lot about this at men's breakfast and things, mm. and so forth, I, my, my line to people is you've got to get off the fence. Yeah. You can't sit on the fence here and think it's all very nice, but uh, make a decision one way or the other. And obviously, make a decision for Christ is the answer to the, you know, the real answer to the question. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So it sounds to me as though he was drawing you at, at different periods of time, but I mean, amazing that you, on your 30th birthday, Easter Sunday, at the tomb. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I have to say, Molly and I went to uh, Israel in 1990, and uh, I had a, not a dissimilar experience. Uh, I knew about Christ, but I came back from Israel, having been there for two weeks on a tour, uh, knowing that Jesus Christ was God as a man, and uh, 
accepting him as my Lord and Saviour. Um, so I think if people do go to Israel with an open heart and an open mind, and particularly going to places like the Garden Tomb or the Garden of Gethsemane or yeah. up in the Galilee, and, and you are seriously seeking, um, then I think the Lord is very kind and gracious to us, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. And I think it also means that you are seeing places that you read about in the scriptures mm-hmm. and you only realise that actually they are real places, actually. Yeah. Um, and if you walk where Jesus walked and think about what was going on, it's, you know, it's bound to impact. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, and, and the fact that the, the guide that day was a retired British Army colonel was an extraordinary <laughs> God incident. Because I think men need men to challenge them in particular. And I was an army captain at the time. And I needed a man to look me in the eye and say, come on, get off the fence, make a decision here. Um, and my subsequent career, you know, dealing with soldiers, very largely male soldiers, that's, that's given me, you know, frankly, huge confidence to look men in the eye and say, come on, let's talk about this, be yeah. challenged by it. Yeah. And I think men need that. Yeah, very good, very good. Now, you joined the army in 1971, as we heard, and had a career which, which took you all over the world. I'd like to select two specific periods in your career and ask you to describe if there were conflicts between your faith and what you were involved with um, at this time, at these times, and also to ask how your faith guided you during what were extremely difficult times. The first of these is in 1999, mm-hmm. when you deployed as a brigadier in charge of a logistics brigade to uh, the Balkans, Macedonia, Albania and Kosovo. Uh, so the first question is, what was your brigade doing in the Balkans? Um, and what did you witness over there? And did that challenge your faith? Where was God in the midst of that? Yeah. And how did your faith help you? Yeah. Yeah, the, I, I'd done um, a couple of tours in the Balkans prior to the Kosovo deployment and also uh, been in the first, involved in the first Gulf War in 1989, 1990, 1991 when Saddam invaded Kuwait and of course Northern Ireland. So I'd been on a number of operational deployments. Um, the first tour in the Balkans was as a result of the Dayton Agreement when a peace agreement had been signed and UN forces that had been involved handed over to NATO to maintain that peace, peace uh, an enforcement operation really rather than a peacekeeping operation, we won't go into the niceties of it, but in other words we would be prepared to use force if, they, if the warring parties started fighting again. Um, so I'd, I, you know, that date and agreement had happened and things moved on and, and so on. Kosovo was, was different in that uh, Kosovo was uh, breaking out in 1999, the Kosovo Liberation Army was wanting a separate to separate Kosovo from Serbia um, and there was a lot of serious fighting going on but eventually um, there was a peace conference in a place called Rambouillet and people assumed that this would produce an equivalent of Dayton and the British government decided that in anticipation of an agreement and some sort of peace enforcement operation that they would deploy a couple of British brigades and one of those was my brigade 101 uh, Logistic Brigade and the other one was 4 Armoured Brigade uh, commanded by a good friend of mine so we deployed through Thessaloniki in Greece um, on, on military shipping and so forth. We moved uh, all our, we began to move our people and our equipment, heavy equipment, tanks and, and, and so forth, up through Greece into Macedonia. And we established ourselves basically around the, the capital of Skopje and established a, a training area where we began to deploy and so on. But this peace agreement failed and uh, the result was NATO in the end started bobbing Serbia. And uh, so therefore we found ourselves 
not having to think about how we were going to move, if you like, gently into Kosovo and conduct this peace enforcement operation, but potentially having to fight our way into Kosovo. Um, and prior to our arrival, there'd been a pretty steady flow of refugees. Well, IDPs initially, internally displaced people, but then refugees crossing the border into Albania in particular, but also northern Macedonia to a degree. Um, and now that wave really intensified. And um, ironically enough, or God incidents again, it was over the Easter weekend <laughs> that the, of that year that this refugee crisis uh, really began to to uh, become a serious issue. I had uh, set up my, my brigade headquarters uh, just north of Skopje. And again, looking back on this, uh, it, uh, it, as I look at the events, the Lord sort of made me, or got me in positions where I sort of met certain people. The first person was a guy called Joe Hegenar, who headed up the United Nations High Commission for Refugees in Kosovo. And Joe came across with a very small team, had been unable to, um, to deal with the crisis inside Kosovo. And we met, and to this day, as I say, I don't really know what, how we did that, but, but basically Joe said, would I go with him and a number of other people to look at potential refugee camps on the Macedonian side of the border? But essentially, Joe said, was also saying at the same time, I can't cope with this. You know, we haven't got the resources to cope with this. And um, I went up to the border, and I saw on the other side of the border literally tens of thousands of people living in open fields. The weather was very poor, and there was very little shelter, food, etc., etc. So this mm. was clearly a major crisis brewing. And I went back to my headquarters and said to my chief of staff, you know, we're going to have to be involved in this somehow. We are going to find ourselves you know, involved in this. And we began to think about you know, what that might look like. And then within a very short period of time, Joe basically said to me, can you help? Mm. Now, remembering we were at that stage preparing to fight our way into Kosovo and support for Armoured Brigade in particular, um, and at this stage my brigade was divided between quite a lot of people still in Greece acting as the logistic uh, footprint there and moving you know, quite a lot of assets up into Skopje and so forth. Um, it would have been relatively easy for me to say as a military commander, look, I'm sorry, this has got nothing to do with me. But um, my instinct was, you know, we, we are going to have to be involved in this. There was, a, there was a humanitarian imperative. People were dying. Now, I'd, I'd like to be able to say that I sort of got on my knees and prayed about it, but the, rea the reality was it was an instinctive, we are going to have to do something. Hmm. And, I, and I think that's because, at that, we're now talking 1999, so I've been a Christian now for 18 years, and my Christian faith is, you know, it, it has a serious um, impact on the way I make my decisions. And it was a natural flow of, of my faith that said, we're going to have to do something, not, we're not interested in this. Hmm. Now, I often have to say there was an operational imperative too, because this crisis was clearly uh, going to get worse and there was a potential for civil war in Macedonia. There had been civil war in all the other Balkan countries when Yugoslavia had broken up. So the Macedonian president and foreign, foreign minister and so forth were very worried about that. And um, so I'd, I'd gone back to my brigade headquarters and, and we'd begun to recce an old airfield site which had a river running through it and lots of space and so forth. And my brigade consisted of a medical unit an engineering unit, a logistic unit, and various other assets that would be pretty useful in yeah. the context of all of this. And then my phone rang, and I found myself talking to the Macedonian foreign minister, who subsequently became the president, was killed in a helicopter crash, actually. And basically he said to me, if I let these people in, in other words, the mass of people on the Kosovo side of the border, 
which the Macedonian government were not allowing across the border because they were worried about the civil war. If I let these people in, can you guarantee that you will not allow them to move elsewhere within Macedonia and move into the capital and so forth? Well, frankly, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> but he wanted an answer. You know, he, it was no good prevaricating and saying, no. well, look, I better have a think about this and, you know, I'll talk to I'll get back the UK, to you. I'll yeah. get back to you. He wanted an answer. So my instinct, again, my instinctive response was to say, yeah, it'll be fine. And, and so I said yes. I went back to the headquarters and said, I don't what know. What have I just agreed to here? Agreed to. Um, <laughs> and we had never faced something like this before. You know, I'd never faced something like this before in operations before. So it's a longer story. I rang one or two people looking for assistance, advice, and so forth, in particular very good friend and, and actually relative who'd run refugee camps in Thailand and worked for the UN and so on. Uh, met Claire Short, who was then the boss of DFID, and um, things began to unfurl. And, and over the space of that Easter weekend, um, it's again a long story, but, but this mass of refugees arrived and we put up something like 3,000 tents and you know, fed and med- gave medical supplies and sort, sorted out the, the water, the sanitation and all of that. The bottom line was there were no aid agencies at that stage at all. Joe's team was a very small team, mm-hmm. um, and the UN, as a, again, didn't have many assets on the ground. So it was up to us to, to, you know, to deal with the situation. And um, so having said yes, and these refugees starting to arrive, uh, the, the guy who was commanding K-4 was a chap called General Mike Jackson, who I'd worked for previously you know, in a number of different ways. And Mike flew in and said, what are you doing? What, what are you up to, sort of thing. But very quickly said, good decision, I will get people here to help you. And other contingents from Cake Faithful, relatively small in numbers, but very you know, very important, German, Italian, other other nations. And this whole refugee thing began to blossom and other camps were being built by, by other people and so forth. What I saw in all of that were people with their life, their world, in plastic bags. I mean, these were people who had been living in Pristina, living in towns and villages around Kosovo. And without over-dramatizing it, it was equivalent to the 1930s in Germany and so forth. People would be woken in the middle of the night and be told, if you're not out of here by the morning, you will be killed. And they had left, walked, some had been put on trains and taken to the border, um, and then just dumped in the middle of nowhere. The men, particularly the young men, were out in the hills fighting, part of the KLA, so this was mostly older people, children, women, mm. um, and, and a mass of, of humanity. So, you know, there they were with their world in a plastic bag, which is pretty challenging when you think of it just from a human point of view. And, of course, this latest refugee crisis in Europe and so forth brought back many members of this. And we put them in these refugee camps. What was also interesting, though, was, of course, it, it created a lot of sympathetic response but pretty quickly, I remember saying, did a lot of media interviews and so forth, and saying, you know, we've got to remember these are not angels. This is human. These are human beings, and inside these camps, pretty quickly, there were protection rackets, <laughs> gun running going on, and prostitution. Young girls being taken away to places like Italy, and, you know, or would have been if we hadn't been able to do something about it. So there was all sorts of, mm. you know, bad things going on inside these camps, um, and we. Basically, we ran those camps for quite a long time. We then handed it over to the UN agencies and some other aid agencies. Oxfam, in particular, arrived and were very helpful. I then found myself uh, sending myself and a a small tactical headquarters to Albania, where we then built some refugee camps in anticipation of more Mm. refugees coming across, because Milosevic was still not giving up on this. 
So from a command leadership point of view, I had my brigade headquarters split over three countries, trying to you know, run refugee camps in various places, and at the same time, continue this planning on fighting our way into Kosovo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But eventually, Milosevic gave in, we moved into Kosovo, and um, the, the refugees were able to get home pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so the crisis was, was good. I mean, it was resolved in, in, in inverted commas within about six, 12 months, I suppose. And a lot of people went home. But that wasn't the end of the issue because a lot of those people, of course, then began to take retribution on the Serbs. Um, there was a Romani gypsy community that were alienated by everybody and we found ourselves looking after them and building camps for them. And my brigade also built and ran prisons and, and set up the railway system and did a lot of, and a lot of logistics stuff for the post-war Built rebuilding of Kosovo, yeah. which was a precursor to what would come later mm-hmm. in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like you were you were you were in a position that um, could influence and help a lot of people. Absolutely, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, it it, it was clear after a while. I mean, we had saved a lot of lives, and and making that decision from a command point of view. Command is a lonely place sometimes, and it's a, you know, it's a longer issue we could talk about, but leadership and command. But I was standing literally in a field on my own with this Macedonian uh, foreign minister saying, you know, can you do this? He needed a decision. I needed to make that decision. And I needed to live with the consequences of making that decision. So timely decision-making in a, in a sort of lonely place. But actually, I, I don't want to overplay that because I, hel- I felt very confident that this was the right thing to be doing. Yeah. And in the sense, you go back to your question, it wasn't a deeply spiritual moment. It was just the right thing to do. I felt that you know, I felt comfortable with it, um, and in conversation with people afterwards, of this balance of the humanitarian imperative and, and the operation imperative, um, and seeing the consequences of what we were able to do, and so mm. on. Mm. And that leadership enabled this crisis to be, um, you know, to be dealt with. Um, and it was as a result of that the, the brigade, I mean I got the CBE but it was the brigade headquarters and the brigade the engineers and the logisticians and the community, you know, the signalers mm. and, the, and the medics and so forth, they did all the hard work I mean yeah. I just yeah. yeah, amazing, amazing now the second period in your career I want to talk to you about is uh, over the time in the early 2003 when you were deployed to Washington, Kuwait and yeah. Baghdad as part of the Office of Post-War Planning yeah. team uh, what were you trying to achieve um, was it achieved and again, how was the Lord guiding your decisions? Uh, was your faith under threat, for instance, of being compromised um, in that particular role? Yeah. yeah, we're now talking, as you say, 2002-2003, so it's not long after the Kosovo deployment, which in simple terms was a success. This was going to be strategic failure, big style, and um, you know, we'll come on to that. This started for me in 2002. Um, I was... Um, stood up by, interestingly, Mike Jackson, who was now the Chief of the General Staff of the British Army, who rang me and said, I want you to become what was called the Joint Force Logistic Component Commander for potential operations in Iraq, because of the war that was going on in 2002 in terms of sanctions and so on. So actually for the for the autumn of 2002, I set up a headquarters in the permanent joint headquarters in Northwood, and I found myself in Florida at the headquarters of the US Central Command along with our Joint Force Commander who was a three-star airman and the other component commanders the Land, Maritime, Air and Special Forces Component Commander so there were five component commanders all at the level of the two-star general working in that, in that uh, US headquarters 
looking at the military plan for potential operations in Iraq. What was interesting in that context is that nobody was really thinking about post-war Iraq. And in some respects, understandably so, this was a military headquarters planning to fight its way into Iraq and win in inverted commas. So, but I did ask several questions in that process because as a logistic component commander, having had the experiences of what I had, I could see some of this coming our way, really. Around, in that planning, the, the, the intent for the British division, armoured division, was that we would go through to the eastern Mediterranean. We had a big logistic base in Cyprus, which was part of my logistic business. I also had two logistic brigades, one of which was the previous one I'd commanded. And we were looking at the logistics of all of this. And the plan was to offload the division in the eastern Mediterranean, take it about 300 kilometres to a place called Silopi, along a single road and railway system, along with four US divisions, and end up north of Kuwait, uh, sorry, north of Iraq, and then come in from the north to be responsible as part of the land campaign for securing parts of northern Iraq alongside the US 4th Infantry Division. But by Christmas time, it w- and, and that line of communication went through Turkey, through southern Turkey. By Christmas time, it was clear the Turks did not want us to do this. And the decision by the UK Chiefs of Staff was that we would therefore would go back to the south and go into Kuwait, and 1st Armoured Division would be part of the southern move. And I have to tell you, I was pretty relieved at this, because logistically, that northern move would have been really difficult. And the, the southern one, because we knew Kuwait from the previous war that I referred to earlier, um, and so on, was a much easier, not easy, but easier than the northern option. And I handed the logistic component command to one of my brigade commanders. And I came back to the UK um, to assume the appointment that I'd, I'd had when Mike Jackson rang me up. But very So that was just around Christmas time, 2002. Very soon... Mike Jackson rang me again and said I want you to go to Washington uh, where there is we understand an office of post-war planning and I need you to go over there find out what's going on um, and you know act as a, as a link back to the UK with himself as CGS but also with uh, the Deputy Chief of Defence Staff well and indeed the Chief of Defence Staff and the Foreign Office and DFID and, and Government so with my military assistant and Royal Naval Officer a submariner Puffer, logistician we went over to Washington in January, and we, I lived there for until March, basically. And for, I mean, so again, it's a very long story, but initially thinking there must be more to it than this. You know, there must be more people thinking about post-war Iraq. There were some people, and there was a very good guy um, who was heading up this office of post-war planning. Um, and uh, but he had a very small team. Uh, and again, I won't go into the niceties of that, but it was pretty clear that you know we were going to struggle. And I was so I was sending reports back. Had a flat in Arlington, and I was going to the embassy every day, saying at the end of a you know long working day, ten o'clock at night, putting together situation reports and sending them back to the UK. Um, and then I came back to the UK and put, and briefed the various senior military, but also Claire Short, who was um, again a diffid and people in the Foreign Office. And at one stage, I briefed the Prime Minister and a couple of other people. And, and essentially, the message was, you know, this is not in a good place, this post-war plan. But the pressure was on for the campaign, and we, you know, we all know the politics of it. And so the campaign um, was, was due to launch in the spring of 2003, and the Office of Post-War Planning had transmogrified into the Office uh, of Humanitarian and Reconstruction, so a different name, OHA it was called. And um, 
At this stage, the UK had not publicly affirmed that we had anybody from the UK involved in this. So, I, you know, this was not a publicly known that I've been doing this work. But I was told to go to Kuwait with this organisation under a guy called Jay Garner and, um, you know, continue the work to work with them, which I did. Foreign Secretary came out, spent a day with us, and then publicly in front of the media announced that the UK were part of this, you know, introduced me in inverted commas. And we stayed in Kuwait when the land campaign started and then moved into Baghdad um, as the that famous picture of the statue being pulled down in Baghdad. And we went into Baghdad and set up this office in Baghdad. I mean, the, pl- the place was chaos. Um, it was held together by chicken wire and chewing gum. Sanctions had a you know, big impact. So things like electricity generation, water supplies, hospitals were in a terrible state. I mean, raw sewage running through hospitals, very little equipment and so on. Um, and, you know, bottom line was this planning had not been sufficiently well thought through. There wasn't sufficient resource there. The U.S. military had fought a very good campaign, as did indeed did First Arm- British First Army Division. But frankly, they'd been involved in this all the way since previous 2002, which I'd been involved with early. And this, we're now talking about April 2003. You know, they were anticipating going home. And they were anticipating other people coming in and taking over from them. And um, eventually, the, the thing got out of hand. Yeah. And all the rioting started and yeah, so on. Turned against. Uh, turned against us. Mm. And, um, and then, um, uh, Jay Garner handed over to... Um, the Jerry Bremer, who, t- who formed what was then called the Coalition Provisional Authority. Bremer made three crucial decisions, which was to disband the Iraqi army and to um, debarthatize the top levels of all of the major government ministries and to slow down the whole political process. That Jay had put in place certain things, which we have more time to go into. So, uh, and, they, and these were very poor decisions. So from a personal point of view, um, you know, seeing this culmination coming together, uh, emotionally very draining. I was physically shattered, uh, you know, very long days over an extended period of time. Um, but, uh, you know, from a personal point of view, trying to influence the thinking, yeah, yeah. trying to, um, as in good army, British army style, really. You know, I might not have liked it, but what can I do to help this work as best as I can? Yeah. To be encouraging to people and so forth. Yeah. But the reality was this was strategic failure. Yeah. And it's for the very first time in my life, really, I was, an, I was experiencing failure. And uh, I came back um, in about the middle of the summer 2003, you know, mentally, emotionally exhausted and physically exhausted. Um, but have subsequently reflected on this, and I now lecture on failure. And I use a lot of biblical examples of how do we deal with failure. Mm. Um, and recognizing I was part of this failure, um, and what does that mean you know, for me? What can I learn from it, and so on? Mm. Um, one of the highlights was um, a guy who's known as the Bishop of Baghdad, yeah. um, Andrew White. Andrew White, who I went to the first communion service in the Anglican, in the Anglican Church in Baghdad, which when uh, when he came out and we we celebrated communion, um, and he was. Um, He's an interesting character for all sorts of reasons, but you know, it was a great dynamo. Um, and we had some good, you know, worship times and so forth, and times to to um, to reflect and read the Bible and so on. But the truth is, yeah. you know, this was a busy time. Sometimes I wasn't able to uh, 
to spend time alone. I mean, it was just you know just that sort of experience. Yeah. But again, I think my point in terms of the you know the guys who are listening to this, I think there are times in our lives when we go through these difficult moments. What sustains us through them is what we have done prior to this. So, in a simple way, as you climb the steps of the aeroplane to go on an operation, it's too late to think about zeroing your rifle. You need to have spent a lot of time on the range, a lot of time preparing for what's going to come. It's too late to think, well, I better go for a run, get myself fit. You've spent weeks, months, in fact, your whole army career getting fit. So that as you climb the steps of that aeroplane, you are prepared militarily. And in the same way, as you climb those steps, you need to be prepared spiritually. And that means for the weeks and the months and the years beforehand, you spent time studying the word, you know, being in church, being around Christians, developing and deepening your faith. Mm. So that when the maelstrom hits, mm. you are then able to cope uh, spiritually as well as all these yeah. other ways. Wonderful. Um, gosh, <laughs> we could talk a long, long time about those things. Now, uh, some might say that being in the army and sending troops to war is incompatible with the Christian faith. After all, didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How would you respond to such comments? Yeah, I mean, you won't be surprised to know that I've you know, been asked this sort of question a number of times since 1981. Um, and actually, it was the process I went through when in 1981 in Cyprus when I had to ask myself, if I'm now a Christian, a disciple of Christ, can I stay in the military? And that's when I sought advice and studied the word and, and, and you know, took this very seriously. Now, again, we haven't got time to go through the whole Bible study, but if we pick up scripture, then when the various people go to John the Baptist to be baptized, when John the Baptist is in the wilderness, one of those groups of people are soldiers. And, and like all the groups, the question was, what do we need to do to be saved? And John the Baptist does not say, leave the army. What he says is, I always think rather unfortunately, be content with your pay. <laughs> um, I, and I think what he means by that is, the Roman soldiers were not paid well, and they would often abuse their power in order to secure more money, more resources, and so on. And John was saying to them, you know, you're not to do that. You're, you're not to abuse your power. You're, you've got to be content with your pay. Jesus, of course, meets the centurion. The centurion says, please come and heal my servant. And Jesus says to, to him, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll come. And the centurion says, no, 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 you don't need to come. Just give the word a command. I'm a soldier, I tell, give a command, people do it. Just, just say and it will happen. And Jesus doesn't say to him, well, I'm sorry, you're a Roman centurion, I'm not, I can't possibly help you. He turns to people around and says, I've never been, found faith like this anywhere in Israel. It's an extraordinary statement. <laughs> yes. um, Peter um, is called in the book of Acts to visit a family of Cornelius. Um, and uh, he's praying and, and gets a vision and God tells him I want you to go to see this guy Cornelius at the same time is, you know, he's told that you're going to be visited by somebody Cornelius is a Roman centurion Peter visits him, Peter's very reluctant to do this but, but the story in Acts says that in the end Peter baptises the family and so on this is probably the first Gentile family baptised into the Christian faith and God is using a centurion soldier then, uh, and there are other examples too, when Paul is shipwrecked, he, a centurion helps him and he, you know, he speaks very highly of him. So th there's nothing, it seems to me, in scripture where God is saying, you need to leave the military. And I think that's a really important message because what it says to me, amongst other things, is we need Christians everywhere. And we need Christians in the military, in politics, in economics, in business, in education, 
you know, etc., etc. If we got to a point where we said, you can't be a Christian in this area, would we have a better British army with no Christians in it? Is that what we would really want? Or, or any other army, Navy or Air Force or so? And then very interestingly, uh, in, in uh, Luke's Gospel, there are two occasions where Jesus sends the disciples out and he says to them, go out without any money um, and you know, preach the word and so on and so forth and go out with, a, with, your, with your staff and, and, um, and do, the, do the business. That's, uh, I can't remember now, it's about Luke chapter 12. I think. In, in, the, in the Passover supper, in the upper room, before the crucifixion, Jesus almost says the exact opposite and he says at one point he says and if you haven't got a sword buy one and one of the disciples says we've got two here and Jesus says that's enough now I'm actually a believer that when Jesus says something he means what he says and he says what he means so although some people try to put different look to this the bottom line is at the last supper there were swords in that room and they were taken with them into the Garden of Gethsemane. And when one of them is used, Jesus stops it and puts the ear back on the on these on the guy's head. So basically says, "This is not the time to be using this." Um, so if Jesus was a pacifist in in simple terms, what's he doing in a room with swords? What's he doing allowing these people to carry the swords into Gethsemane? And what's he doing about telling them to buy swords? And we haven't got time to open that up in terms of Bible study, but. That those are not unimportant issues for me those mm. whole collection of stories and others um, and we'll maybe come on to Joshua in a moment who, mm. who I think is you know, mm. an extraordinary character and, in, and of course David and many others in the Old Testament but as a Christian you know Jesus, Paul, Peter, the disciples and so forth so my line is that A that's, you know, that's the biblical approach and then alongside that you know, I watched the mass graves being dug up in, the, in, in Iraq I saw in Northern Ireland the terrible consequences of IRA terrorism. Um, you know, I was a bomb disposal operator. Saw things we haven't got time to talk about. But, but in the Balkans, you know, the ethnic cleansing and so forth. We live in a brutal, evil, sinful world, and words like sin and evil are not interesting theological discussions to me. They're a reality of a brutal, fallen world, and like we need a police force to police the streets of our cities and towns against criminality and so forth I think we need an international force that deals with brutal dictatorships stops ethnic cleansing and all the brutality that flows from that uh, and so again you know sitting um, in uh, going outside um, outside Baghdad to um, um, you know, by the rivers of Babylon and so forth going to Nebuchadnezzar's palace looking at all these Old Testament places reading the Old Testament, walking around and so forth, recognising the world of Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the Roman Empire and other empires and the brutality that flows from all of those things the only other approach to that is to say well no I'm not going to engage with that, I'm going to stay out of it and, and let it let it thrive and, and let, let it thrive, I mean at the end of the day we need, in my view we need to deal with these people yeah. now how we deal with them uh, it brings us on to the Joshua story which I'll come to in a moment mm. maybe so yeah, yeah at the end of the day this is an issue that I've thought through pretty carefully and I'm very comfortable with the fact mm. that my decision to stay in the military and the way that the Lord used me over those years in the instance that we discussed and other instances too makes me very comfortable 
with, mm. with that. I, I think that's where the Lord wanted me to be, and, and I've been very you know, used by him. Very good. Now, I, um, in my questions to you before the interview, I asked you about any struggles or challenges in your life, uh, and you replied that there had been um, some, um, one of which was influencing politicians and the media, yeah. that Christianity is the bedrock of our civilization, and that there's a real danger that our secular liberal democracy will collapse in the not-too-distant future. Um, why do you say this, and how do you go about influencing our politicians about the importance of Christianity in our yeah. nation. Yes, this is this is something that over the years I've reflected on quite a bit. And actually, going back to my earlier comment, uh, I visited Babylon outside Baghdad um, and Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And if you and I were sitting having a conversation in Nebuchadnezzar's empire days, we would have thought this is the way the world is. Nebuchadnezzar is this incredible tyrant, but dictator, but leader. This empire is what it is. That's the way it always is. But of course, his empire collapses, uh, and so on with Greek Empire, Roman Empire. Um, you know, the rush communism was going to last a thousand years. Nazism was going to be well. The communism was going to be the end of history. Nazism, Germany was going to Third Reich was going to last a thousand years. These, um, whatever you want to call them, uh, civilizations of bleak empires, crash and burn. And so my perspective of this is that there is no God-given right for liberal capitalism democracy as we understand it to survive forever and a day you know academically papers have been written about the end of history Francis Fukuyama and others looking at you know the whole world will become free um, and that was after the collapse of, the, of communism of course back in the 1989-1990 when the wall came down as we look at the world today you know, you've got lifelong dictatorships in China. You've got Putin is basically in, in for life. You've got Turkey. You've got uh, what's happening all over the place, Venezuela and so on and so forth. Um, you know, lots of people, I would say the majority of people in the world, do not live under the sort of democracy that we understand. And interestingly, uh, in the context of Theos, which is a Christian think tank, we had as our annual speaker last year the ex-boss of the Liberal Democrats. Mm. And... He gave a talk. In Tim, Tim Perrin. Tim Perrin. Yep. He gave a talk about his experience of having to stand down as that leader because of his Christian faith. The irony of the liberal Democrats yes. forcing their leader to go because he was a Christian. Yes. And what he said at this thing, the thing I remember from it was, liberalism is eating itself, was an expression that he used. And what we're seeing today is many aspects of that. We haven't got time to go into it all. So my sense is that we need to understand that there is no God-given right for the world to become free, liberal, democratic as we understand it. Uh, in a recent poll in Australia at university, over 30% of the people at the university said they wouldn't mind living under a Chinese-style democracy. Well, they better be careful what they, have, what they wish for. But so, you know, that, that can change. And in terms of where does Christianity sit in this, um, a generation or so ago, there wouldn't have been this debate. There wouldn't have even been a conversation about it. But now there is a strong atheistic, secularistic, humanistic drive to push Christianity aside from our major institutions, including Parliament. I mean, there's a recent move in Parliament to stop the morning prayers that have been going on since 1500 in Parliament. Um, so going back to the comment about politicians and so forth, uh, and my the golden thread that runs through the work that I do now of morally courageous leadership is to say to people what is the, the value system that is underpinning 
you know, what we're trying to do here, our establishments, our politics, our economics, and so forth. So just to give you a little cameo, I was challenged by a Channel 4 reporter who, in a, in a conversation, a one-to-one conversation, who basically said to me, look, you should keep your faith inside your own front door. My response to him was, look, everybody has a faith. Everybody has a faith. It, it is the way they view the world, the prism through which they view the world. And that may be an atheistic, secular, humanist, materialistic. It may be a religious faith, Christian, uh, Judaism, uh, Muslim, and so forth. But everybody has a faith through which they see the world and through which they live their lives and from which their decisions flow. So when we look at secularism, for example, and I had conversations with politicians and senior people in the Foreign Office, Department of International Development and so forth, over the last 20 years, senior people who said, look, religion is irrelevant now in the, in the modern world. London will be an, the first atheistic capital. You know, we will, we will, it will just become a completely unimportant. I have to say, one of the big... Uh, I think one of the influences that we got it so badly wrong in Iraq because people didn't understand the power of religion. They didn't even understand the distinction between Sunni and Shia and Turkmen and, and all the other minority faiths and so on. Um, but what I said to this Channel 4 reporter is um, let's just think about regimes that have been atheistic, secular in their drive. You know, can we think of some uh, like Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, uh, Hitler? You know, what were these regimes like? When you, when you try to push Christianity out, you don't just end up with nothing. <coughs> Something fills that void. Yeah. Um, and morality flows from these, view, from these worldviews. So my, you know, my drive, my, my conversations I have with, with these guys mm. uh, in politics and economics and, and, and media and so forth is to say Christianity is not the problem. It's part of the solution. And when we look at today's world and look at what's been going on over the last 30 or 40 years um, and we've tried to push Christianity out, what, what's been happening in our society, to families, to the way we, we, we're led and all sorts of other issues. Um, so it's a challenge. It comes back to my earlier point. It's challenging people by not withdrawing behind my front door and having a private faith. Christ did not stay behind the door. Christ was out challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees mm. and the teachers of the law. Mm. I mean, he was pretty brutal with them often. Yeah. The language was pretty strong. He was. He was. Um, and part of me, you know, ends up in this conversation by, by basically saying to some of these guys, okay, you want to follow Baal? You follow Baal and see where it takes you. Yeah. Because it's not a pleasant place. Yeah. I will follow Christ. Mm. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar not the world, not politics not the, you know, the Labour Party or the Communist Party or whatever it is mm. Jesus is Lord and when you put him on as first from that everything flows yeah, peace, love, gentleness, kindness, humility you know, mm. all the, all the, mm. all the fruits of the Spirit yeah. uh, and so on yeah, yeah. Uh, and words like love and integrity and honour and duty mm. which form the heartbeat of a, of a society uh, a successful society and once you strip that lot away you're left with not a lot dog eat dog dog eat dog yeah yeah yeah, yeah. now um, I want to talk uh, switch now to, to the to the word the bible and, and yeah. why the bible is important to you I remember uh, with precept um, 
we had a, it was probably one of our first ever trainings that we took place in Camberley. Yeah. Uh, you were there. You came along. A lovely couple, Bob and Diane Vereen, had come across from the States to, to start teaching us about this method of study, inductive Bible study, which, of course, you know, we, we later took on and, and got involved with. Um, so you attended that training. You yeah. obviously have a heart for the Lord, as we've heard, and also the, the, the Word of God, you know, wanted to study it and, and, and um, grow in that. So why is the Bible important to you? I, I, I think you know it's easy. It's easy to become super spiritual in all these sort of conversations. And um, uh, but the bottom line is, it's the bedrock. Uh, I mean, I, I happen to believe in truth, not in truths, plural. Um, there's a the wonderful joke of a, a comment by Mort Saal, who was the chief of staff in the White House at one stage, who said that George Washington could never tell a lie, Richard Nixon could never tell the truth. Bill Clinton didn't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> and we do live in a world where most people don't believe in truth. They believe in truths. And, of course, we're seeing reflection of that in fake news and all this other stuff that's you know, floating around. I happen to believe in truth. And, of course, the great irony of Pilate's question to Jesus when he asked him what is truth is that truth was standing in front of him. <laughs> and Pilate, you know, failed in all sorts of aspects of his leadership and so forth. So I believe in truth, and I believe in truth which is embodied in, in biblical truth. Um, and therefore I want to know about that truth. I want to know what Christ said. I want to know how he reacted to circumstances. I want to know uh, and be clear about what his purpose was, what his intent was, what his sense of identity was, and where did it lead him. <clears throat> Many years ago, somebody, I read I think some, somewhere, that to live a contented life, we need to have a real sense of identity a deep sense of purpose and a deep sense of faith hmm. and Christ you know, knows who he is uh, knows who he is he knows what his purpose and identity is and I want to know what my purpose and identity is and I want to be rooted in, in a deep faith and that's what the Bible begins to you know, open up for me and in both the Old Testament and the New Testament so every day not, you know, the truth is that not every day because some days I miss it for all sorts of reasons but you know, well, I'm sitting here looking at my Bible now and on top of it is um, a little uh, a book, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers a daily Bible study, very challenging <laughs> sometimes I don't quite know what it's telling me and I have to reflect on it but every day to sit down uh, and, and look at some uh, biblical read some Psalms read some of the stuff from the New Testament Old Testament, to use a Bible study, like something like uh, Oswald Chambers or anything else that opens up some questions uh, sit quietly and pray for what the day is about to bring just becomes you know, part of who I am yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's very important yeah. do you have a favourite character in the Bible or book? Uh, well Jesus of course would come out pretty well on top of that but, uh, but I think there's lots of answers to that but actually in all seriousness Joshua is definitely one of them you know as a military commander uh, he'd been Moses' ADC he'd been up to the mountains seen the Ten Commandments he'd lived through the whole Sinai experience um, and he then takes command and for me the, the really interesting passage I mean people often talk about Joshua at the beginning you know be strong and very courageous and so forth follow the, the book of the Lord do not turn from the left and right all that's very important and there's, there's obviously an issue of courage there but the key passage for me in the early part of Joshua is when they're just about to go for the battle of Jericho and we're told that Joshua is walking on his own and he meets a man dressed in armour and uh, I've been there on my own in that field in Macedonia in, 
you know, in, in the Balkans, in, in Iraq, and so forth, at reflecting on what is going to be opening up here. Joshua, if you imagine, Joshua just taken over command, he's going to take these people into the Promised Land. Two million of them, <laughs> and uh, and he must have been saying to himself, "How am I going to get on here? Am I going to lead this well? Are we going to win? Will I die?" etc um, etc et and he then meets this man dressed in armour and he asks him a very sensible question are you on their side or on our side <laughs> and the bible tells us that the angel of the lord response is no or neither not a very helpful expression not a very helpful response to Joshua's question but he then says but as the commander of the lord's army I have now come now Joshua has a decision to make he could have said, I don't know who the heck you are, but you're not commanding my army. You know, leg it, get Sergeant Major, put this man in the, in, you know, in, in the nick. In the nick. <laughs> but what we're told is Joshua falls to his knees, takes his sandals off, falls to his knees and says, what are my Lord's commands? He then receives the most ridiculous battle plan that anybody could possibly have come up with. I mean, we read these stories and don't think them through deeply enough. This guy says, march around this city seven times over seven days, blow some trumpets, you'll be fine. Joshua must have thought, this is crazy. Mm. But he then has a decision to make. Does he follow his Lord's commands or doesn't he? Who is in charge here, Joshua? Is it you or is it God? Is it the Lord? And that takes us back to several things we've talked about in terms of being a Christian military. It's about who's in charge? Where does God want me to be? Am I going to do what he tells me to do? Am I going to respond in the way that he wants me to respond? Mm. And Joshua makes the decision, does what he's told, and as we all know from childhood, Sunday school, the walls come tumbling down. And from then on, he goes to fight over 40 battles in a campaign that lasts for a long time and so forth. Uh, and then you get to the end of the Joshua, where he gathers the people back together and says, you've got a choice to make. Do you follow the gods of this land? Do you follow the gods of the, all the other tribes and so forth? But as for me and my family, we will follow the Lord. Yeah. Is that, maybe that's your favourite is that one of your favourite yeah. Bible verses that would be one of your favourite Bible yeah. verses now I just want to finish with this um, it, with all that you've witnessed in your career um, how might you engage the sceptic or the person of no particular faith who might legitimately say to you uh, look at all the killing look at the wars look at the troubles in the world how can there possibly be a God who is loving and caring how would you persuade that person to take the claims of Christianity and the Word of God seriously. Mm. Yeah, I, and you know, again, you wouldn't be surprised to know that I've I've had that sort of conversation in many different ways over the years. I, th I think at the end of the day, we do come back to the heartbeat of our faith, um, which is God sends His Son into a broken, sinful, violent, brutal world where He is hung on a cross and dies. In other words, he, God comes down to this world of, of evil and bitterness and, and all that old stuff and puts himself in it and then says, I am prepared to die for this. Now, what he's, there's lots of issues here, but one of, one of the issues is, go back to the Garden of Eden and uh, Adam and Eve. What Adam and Eve are really doing when they eat the fruit of that tree is they're saying, I am my own God. I will make my own decisions and as a result of that there is this break with God we are, we, we are separated from him we die an earthly death but we also die a spiritual death and what Christ is doing on that cross is bringing us back to that relationship with God 
and he's doing it inside this world he's not doing it outside in a nice pleasant fluffy place he's doing it within the brutality he is beaten up he, you know and, and all the stuff that I've seen reality on mm. um, and he's nailed to this cross and as he dies on it he says father forgive them and then he says it is finished and if we are prepared to put our trust in him we can be reconciled back to our creator God um, the father who created us the son who died for us and the Holy Spirit who lives in us makes us we are born again um, and that reconciliation enables us to live a contented life in this brutal world and yes we will suffer Jesus doesn't say we're not going to suffer I mean I've suffered you know, ter- terrible seen terrible things suffered you know, a fair bit and ultimately you know, unless the Lord comes again I will end up dying um, but this is a you know, this is about eternity. Yeah, a hope. Uh, it's a hope of what's to come. Mm. Yeah. So uh, all of that, I, I think, you know, this, the, the, the thing to stress is that God comes into this violent, brutal world and lives amongst it and dies amongst it, yeah. and uh, and we can take strength and courage from that. General Tim, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating uh, journey, uh, interview, and uh, may the Lord bless you as you uh, continue in your various roles and and speaking in in public life, uh, but also many other contexts as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Bible and Me podcast from Precept Ministries UK. By leaving a rating or review, you can help us to reach a wider audience with the good news of God's grace and plans for his people. But otherwise, until next time, we hope you have a blessed week from all of us here at PMUK.